Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Brene Brown, and this is Unlocking Us. All right. Today's guest is an actress, an activist, an executive producer, a writer, and I am proud to say a good friend, Laverne Cox. She is a three-time Emmy-nominated actress, an Emmy-winning producer, and a prominent equal rights advocate and public speaker. Laverne's groundbreaking role of Sophia Bursett in the critically acclaimed Netflix original series Orange is the New Black brought her to attention of audiences all over the world. This role led to Laverne becoming the first openly transgender actress to be nominated for a primetime acting Emmy and made her the first trans woman of color to have a leading role on a mainstream scripted television series. She is continuing to expand her presence on the big screen and small screens with diverse and groundbreaking roles. In addition to a currently in-production new 10-episode limited series called Inventing Anna, which is she's doing with Shonda Rhimes. This Friday, June 19th, she has a documentary coming out called Disclosure. The full name is Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen. It's an unprecedented, groundbreaking look at the depiction of transgender characters throughout the history of film and television, Again, it comes out this Friday, June 19th. Let me tell you, just June 19th, we need to watch this. It's, I've watched the trailer literally 30 times. It is going to be important, critical awareness building about love, about trans thought leadership and creativity. I can't wait. Let's meet Laverne. I have always started, this podcast launched in the middle of COVID, or right when COVID did. So I always start with this question, which has taken on new meaning. How are you? No bullshit. How are you doing? It's been up and down. And for me, it's a day at a time. And I'm taking it a day at a time. And it's been different every day. And I've had ebbs and flows at the beginning of quarantine. The first week, I was so excited. I hadn't had like a non-vacation week off in a really long time. And I've been flying back and forth between LA and New York shooting a show. And like, so the first week I was sleeping a lot and I didn't have anything to do and it was incredible. And then the second week I got a little stir crazy and a little, uh, usually that's when I want to go back to work. And then at week three, I hadn't left, I live in a condo in LA. So I hadn't left the building in like about 21 days And I woke up at day 21, like in the middle of the night with a panic attack. I felt like the walls were closing in on me, which had never happened to me before in my life. And I had literally just needed fresh air. And I had, I went up to the roof of my building just to, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. Um, It was 
really intense. I was like, okay, maybe I need to leave the building. So, uh, so it, it yeah. took me a few days to do that. So a few days later, I um, I left the I went to Walgreens and just sort of walked around the neighborhood with mask and gloves and all of that. And then a few weeks after that, I was like, oh, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for spiritual growth. This is an opportunity for personal growth. And I can really focus in on, and I've been talking about that and sort of talking it, but then I was like, let me really go inside and really deepen my meditation and really deepen my resiliency practice and really get in touch with who I am on a deeper level. And so when I come out of this, I will be a better person. I will be more evolved. I'll be more myself. And so that became my charge. And then, and I was deep into that and that was great. And then work started amping up again. And then we, and honestly, this whole Netflix deal with Disclosure probably happened about five weeks ago. They said, oh, Pride's coming up. We want your movie for Pride. And so we had to scramble and do deals and, and, and put a trailer together. And just doing a deal is a whole thing. As you know, you had a Netflix special. So it, then it became this crazy scramble, <laughs> um, trying to you know get trailers together and figure out promotion in, in five weeks. So I, I'm trying to balance my self-care, and this is my life this year, really trying to be in very intentional with self-care, with slowing myself down, with breathing, with meditation, and balancing that with work. That's where I'm at today. And um, today, of course, is the day that the Supreme Court handed down their landmark decision in the Title VII case. And I have been on an emotional roller coaster today, crying and just sort of screaming and elated and just in disbelief. I just, yeah, I'm still in shock, honestly, because we didn't think we would win this based on the, you know, makeup of the court. And to win 6-3, it's, um, so it's been, I give really long answers. So it's been, <laughs> it's been up and down and it's been a day at a time. And today I am elated and somber still because another black man was killed, Rayshon, in um, Atlanta. It's, it's a, it's a very, tricky time to be alive. So, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> I think anyone that doesn't have an answer of how are you doing that includes it's complicated is not fully maybe awake to what's happening. It is maybe the most complex time of my life. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have watched the disclosure trailer because I can't get into it because it doesn't come out until Friday, June 19th, mm-hmm. 32 times. Oh my God. Now, I mean, I've watched it over and over and over again. Wow. I, I cannot, the only thing that makes me sad about it really is that I'm not teaching right now because this is the film of this. This would be the film of the semester for me. This would be the film that we watch and talk about, tell us about, I, I've heard it described as this, an unprecedented eye-opening look at transgender depictions in film and television, revealing how Hollywood simultaneously reflects and manufactures our deepest anxieties about gender. Oh, that's good. Who wrote that? <laughs> That's good. We need to. We need to. Um. We need to uh, steal that. It is that. It is. It is. We take a look at the history of trans representation 
on screen for the first hundred years of uh, film and television. And it, this project is a dream come true for me. I um, Three years ago, I was had been living in Los Angeles for a year and was missing all my New York friends and just feeling very disconnected from, from community. And I went on, it was a Saturday morning and I went on my Instagram and saw that two of my friends, uh, Jen Richardson and Angelica Ross were doing, was speaking on a panel at Outfest. And I said, I'm going to go. And I just sort of jumped out of bed. It was 1115. I remember it was 1115. I just, you know, I didn't even shower. I didn't put any makeup on it because the panel started at noon. So I jumped out of bed threw some clothes on, got a lift and I went and I walk in and my friend Nick Adams from GLAD said that I'm so glad you're here. This guy named Sam is doing a presentation. It's the transcelluloid closet. You should, you should be here for it. And I said, oh my gosh, I literally had just been having a conversation about doing a film that looked at the history of how trans people were being represented on screen. And Sam's presentation was brilliant. I met him afterwards. We met a week later and I said, how can I be involved in this? And the beautiful thing about disclosure, there's so many beautiful things for me personally, but every single person who appears on screen is transgender. And the story of this history of trans representation is told through the memories of trans people. It's told through, I saw this film at this time and I it made me think this about myself. And I wonder if this representation is why people think about me this way. When um, when Jen Richards, for example, um, one of our um, contributors, says in the film that when she told a friend of hers, she's from Chicago, and she told a friend of hers who's this, you know, white woman, a very educated from upper middle class background, she said, oh, you know, I'm trans and I'm going to transition. And her, the first thing her friend said was, oh, you mean like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs? And yeah. That Jesus. was this woman's first reference point for someone being trans and a, a character that was a serial killer that skinned women. I mean, it was that this is the the reference point says so much about how we've come to understand who trans people are says so much about, you know, we cite a statistic in the film that 80% of Americans say they don't personally know someone who's transgender, according to a study from GLAAD. And so what most Americans um, learn and about trans folks comes from the media. And so what we're learning is like with Buffalo Bill character, then it, it's very understandable why we are where we are in terms of trans rights and trans representation in this country. So... It's really about trans spectatorship. It's about how we how we look, how we and how these representations affect how we see ourselves and how other folks see us. It's been a labor of love and I can't believe we're here. We're premiering in a few days. It's very exciting. Well, so let me ask you this. The Sam that you ran into at the festival, at the film festival, was that was that Sam Fader? Sam Fader. He is our director. Yes. Okay, I'm asking because I've I've read everything I can read about disclosure. I've got so many questions. Okay, so let me ask you about a so first of all, the, is this true or not true? And I fact check something I read that mm-hmm. you you sourced funding for this. You're one of the executive producers that you helped try to get funding to put this film together and you put it together, you star in it and that you blew people away at Sundance, that people just watched this film and literally could not speak after they saw this documentary. 
That's so sweet to hear. So we premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. I was not there. I was shooting. I was in um, Morocco shooting a TV show. Um, we were sl we were slated to have our New York premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, and that was canceled because of COVID. So uh, the festival run that we were supposed to have has not happened. Got it. Um, so Sundance is the only place where we played. When we did premiere at Sundance, we got a five-minute standing ovation which um, I'm told is, uh, is unheard of at Sundance, which is pretty amazing, that people were so moved and had so many aha moments from the film. And, and the, the audience there was, there were a lot of trans folks there. So um, that made me feel really good because we made this film for trans people. Because what does it mean to have a film that's by trans people, really for trans people, that centers our voices, our experiences, and it is made for us. We, we want everyone to watch and to learn and to be entertained, but we made it for trans people. We made it for us to have this document of, of our history on screen. And yeah, it, it was just, it was magical. I did a little um, Zoom um, in from Morocco um, for the, to say hi to everyone uh, to um, during the Q&A after the film. And yeah, it's been, it's, it's, such, it's such a very difficult thing to want to make a film and to make a film like this. And can I, can I tell you, Brene, it's still really hard, even with all the progress we've made, it is hard to sell a film, a trans film. It still is really hard. We had so many TV um, networks tell us, oh, we have our trans film or, oh, we did something oh, similar. And God. there's never been anything like this before. So no one's ever done anything similar. And so it is so hard to sell a, a film like this. And so the fact that we are premiering on Netflix worldwide in a few days is, is really a miracle. And the fact that we were able even to finish the film is a miracle and it's a testament to Amy Shoulder, um, our producer and Sam Fader. They really were relentless in, in, in the vision and uncompromising. And we asked so many people for money and they applied for so many grants, like this, the grants and the investment. And it's, it's really incredible. And we had fundraisers and, oh girl, <laughs> it's amazing. It's a miracle. It's a and it's here. It's here. Okay. So there's, there are a collection of quotes from the film that I want to read to you and talk about because mm. I'm thinking a lot about Rhea Milton, Remy Fells, two black trans women who were killed in the last week. Yeah. I'm thinking about the data from Human Rights Campaign that in 2020, 14 transgender or gender nonconforming people have been fatally shot or killed by other types of violence. And we think the number is much greater because of the misreporting and the mishandling of these cases. Yep. There's a paradox in these statements that I want to get into with you because this is, I, I have read public health officials saying the killing of transgender women specifically transgender women of color is an epidemic. And here's what's interesting. You say in disclosure, unprecedented trans visibility. We ha at, at, this is a time in our history where just this, the visibility for trans women is just incredible. But, but at the very same time, trans women are being killed at this alarming rate. Another person in the film says, the paradox of our representation is this. 
the more that we are seen, the more that we are violated. And then last, and this is the one that just, they all break my heart, but this one just kind of broke my heart and took my breath away at the same time. The more positive the representation that we have in the world today, in film, in, in art, in books, in literature, the more positive the representation, the more confident our community becomes. And the more confident our community becomes, the more danger that we're in. Yeah. That is what Sam in 2014, and he, the way he tells it, when I was on the cover of Time Magazine with the, with the yeah. headline, the transgender tipping point, um, he said, oh, something's going on here. Like we, we've never seen this before. And what Sam knows about whenever a marginalized community comes to the mainstream, there's usually backlash. And he wanted to understand how we got here to that point that we were six years ago and how we got to where we are now. And that really is that that is the paradox. That is the thing that we're sort of simultaneously holding that we are more visible than we've ever been. We are represented in more affirming ways than we ever have been before in the media. But there is indeed an epidemic of murder, of violence. And I think, too, it's important, too, that the thought has also been legislative. In the past, I would say, in the past since 2016, so the past four years, there have probably been at least 500 pieces of legislation introduced in state legislatures all over the country, criminalizing trans people going to the bathroom, criminalizing trans kids playing on sports teams that are consistent with how they identify, adoption for trans folks. I mean, all these different laws in different state legislatures basically trying to criminalize trans identity, trying to sort of say that we we don't exist, that sex, I mean, so much of what this, um, on the federal level, so much of the effort on a policy level has been about, the, about this thing of biological sex and sex is what is assigned to you at birth and their immutable qualities based on chromosomes. You know, there was this leaked memo um, a few years ago from the Department of Health, Health and Human Services, and they have trying to redefine sex and basically define transgender people out of any kind of legal protection. And so we see the assault happening in the in the violence that against trans people on the streets and and but we're also seeing it on a legislative level. And that's why the Supreme Court decision today is 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 huge in the face of all of these many, many years. There's it's so complicated because I think on a there's some purists who just don't want trans people to exist. I mean, I think it comes down to over and over again, and it seems overly simplistic, but when you when you have laws that um, basically say that um, biological sex is this and it's in, and gender identity is not a protected class and, and sort of suggesting that trans people are mentally ill. It's like, we don't want you to exist. And, and the, the legislative assault, the, physical assaults and the violence. It's all about like erasing us. Um, literally, there's a few years ago, a campaign started on the internet, hashtag we won't be erased. And in the face of all of this, this Supreme Court decision today does not bring back Dominique Fells, does not bring back Rhea Hilton, does not bring back Tony McDade, the trans man who was murdered by police in Tallahassee, Florida, does not bring back Laylene Polanco, who died in police custody a year ago at Rikers Island. It doesn't bring back all the trans people. There's so there's just the list is long. It's very, very long. But the work, the the, the work I think that Yes, we need public policies in place, and this is this is very much related to Black Lives Matter. The police need to be 
defunded or at least their resources need to be reallocated. There need to be policies in place, but it, but we've had a civil rights act since 1964 and racism still exists. So the work, the deep, deep work is each and every one of us interrogating the ways in which we've internalized white supremacy, the ways in which we've internalized transphobia and sexism and misogyny and how we may perpetuate that. And I, and I, I believe that because I know in my own experience, I'm a black transgender woman from Mobile, Alabama, who grew up internalizing so much racism about myself as a black person, so much racism about other black people because of the culture that I live in, because of what I saw in the media, stereotypes and racist ideas that I had to then unlearn, I had to decolonize my mind. If it is possible for me as a black person to internalize all these racist white supremacist ideas about myself and other black people, isn't it possible for somebody who is not black to do the same thing? I believe we're all racist. I believe we all are racist, racist in that we all have been acculturated in what bell hooks calls imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy i add to that cis normative heteronormative we all have grown up in in this culture with films like for a hundred plus years that have reinforced stereotypes and, and, and implicit biases that we don't even know we have and the work of coming to critical consciousness this, uh, my, my hope is that disclosure will help folks come to critical consciousness around all these issues and then we have to continue to come to critical critical consciousness around race too, that we're still not there with race and race is so deeply embedded in, in, in so much of the myth of, of, of America. That the work though has to be each and every one of us doing this internal work and holding ourselves accountable. And I, one of the things I love, I mean, I love many things about your work, but you talk about it when the way you talk about accountability requiring vulnerability is so we as a culture don't know how to be accountable with there's so much blame there's so much like over look over there this person did this that person did that and there is such a, an inability that i see of people to really be able to sit with themselves and say what is my part in this what is my part and i think that is the work that we have been unable to do as a country. And obviously that is just a part of the equation, right? Because we have to ask ourselves is then we have to treat each other better interpersonally. Then we have to change ideology. Then we have to change institutions and these things can happen simultaneously. But the work of being personally accountable, we don't know how to be structurally accountable either as a country. My friend um, Dee, Dee Tranny Bear, who does um, my hair sometimes, we were doing that show, Who Do You Think You Are? Which is a, um, um, a show where they look into your sort of ancestry. And we were um, in Alabama, my home, home state, and we were driving, I think, from Montgomery to Selma. And we were driving through cotton fields. And, and Dee, he was born in Germany, and he was like, what is this? Like we're driving through these fields of cotton in Alabama and it's just so triggering. And my, and my makeup artist, Deja, she's a black woman. We were all, it was, it was, it was deep. And he just doesn't understand as someone from Germany, how that we have not as a country fully acknowledged the legacy of slavery, said this happened. And these are the things we're going to do to make sure that we never forget the way in Germany, they've done very, been very intentional with saying this Holocaust is a stain on our history. And we need to make sure that we that we don't forget and that we don't repeat the mistakes of this. He was just so shocked 
that like that there has not been that in the United States and there hasn't been. And so this is this is the thing that we're reckoning with. I'm switching back and forth between race and trans, but it's all it's intersectional and it's all connected. And I'm black and I'm trans. So the accountability piece, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but I just my sensibility just looking around is we don't know how to be accountable. And I don't know if you think that's a vulnerability deficit, scarcity, just fight, flight or freeze. What what the F is going on? (laughs) I mean, first of all, I mean, I there's no one that could give an answer as eloquent as what you just gave. And I don't think, I think it goes back to if you don't own the story, you can't write the ending. And if you don't own a story, the story owns you. And right now the story of systemic white supremacy and racism owns us. It owns us as a country. Like it owns all of us. Um, I, I, can I, can that, I feel like Oprah right now. Cause that's a tweetable moment. That's a tweet tweet. That <laughs> I, we're have, I'm having a super soul Sunday moment, but that's a tweet tweet because because I I mean I've heard you say this before, but you apply that in con, in the context of our history as Americans around race. Can you say that one more time? Because I just want to like we you, either you own the story or the story defines you, and when you own the story, you can write a brave new ending. And that in relationship to oh, that's deep, that's real deep. But I mean, it's, I think it's true for race. I think it's true for misogyny. I think it's true for transphobia. I think we are, and and that's why I'm like, damn it, I wish I was teaching right now so I could gather a group of people to watch Disclosure because what Disclosure is to me is laying out the story so it can be owned. Wow. Right? It's laying out the story so it can be owned so that we can write a different ending. A brave new ending. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I got to ask this question, though, because this, this is everyone involved with this film is trans, which I think is its beauty and power. The story I make up is it had to be painful to go back and watch some of those depictions of how trans people have been depicted. I mean, I think of, you know, to be honest with you, when I think about my own experience coming into awareness, I think about Silence of the Lambs. I think about the crying game. I think about that story where the two bosom buddies. Oh bos- my God, bosom buddies, yes. With Tom yes, Hanks but, and 
whoever the other guy yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Which is not a story of trans, but that's that's what, you know, that's the only visual, like that's the that's the visual. How so is it a mixture of catharsis and pain to go back and see that history? What was that experience like for you? Pain is pain is a good word, especially preparing to to be interviewed for it and rewatching a lot of things. And I mean, there's a moment when I when I'm when I'm talking about Nip Tuck and just recounting the storyline, <laughs> one of many story, trans storylines actually on that show that were problematic, and just saying it. I was talking to my brother on the phone about it the other day, and just saying it is so like. I mean, just saying what happened is like, it is, there just aren't even, there aren't really words to describe the feeling of watching and then recounting some of the, some of the representations that um, exist in the history of how trans folks have been represented on screen. It's deeply painful at times, but I think what Sam, our director, does a really great job of, and our contributors, everyone who appears on screen does, is is mixing humor with it. So sometimes the ways in which the, these uh, these representations are so ridiculous, you have to laugh, and then other times it's just deeply disturbing. And so there, there, there's a mix of that. Yeah. And I think you have to find ways to laugh. You have to, or it just, it'll take you down. And I think maybe that's the beauty of the psychological safety of a film where everyone involved is trans because you can have, like we call it in our research, knowing laughter. Yes. And knowing laughter is usually reserved for people inside the pain and trauma that we can laugh that we thought at one time it was just us, you know, I was alone. And so that's sometimes I think laughter forces us to breathe in times where we just can't find our breath. Right. It's, it's a release. It's like, it's, it's a somatic, (laughs) my therapist, my somatic therapist you met. Um, It's a a (laughs) breath can be a release, a smile, but a laugh is a release. And and we can, if we can sense into the laugh somatically, we can begin to reset our nervous systems, which is so crucial (laughs) for me at every moment. It's so crucial. Yeah. So I read this interview, and this is this is a t- this is a tough question. I'm I'm telling you, I think that's a tough question. Okay. I like tough questions. I know you do because you always have tough answers. You're not afraid of a tough answer, Laverne. Okay. So in an interview that Sam Vader did, the journalist journalist uh, David Reddish asked Sam if the root of transphobia is both homophobia and sexism, and Sam says absolutely but it's more sexism than homophobia. So the interview, the, the journalist probes and says, why do you say that about sexism? And Sam says, there's nothing worse in the world than being a girl. Mm. And mm. so I, I, I make up that very few people You've been talking about intersectionality, which is the intersection of oppressed identities, right? I make up that very few people understand the role of misogyny in transphobia. First of all, do you agree that misogyny plays a role? And what the hell? 
So Julia Serrano, in her brilliant book, her iconic book, Whipping Girl, coins the term transmisogyny. And okay. it's quite simply the intersection of transphobia and, and misogyny, and specifically directed at trans women. And she looks at it sort of it, it, within a legacy of feminist theory. And trans misogyny is, is reserved specifically for that, that term, specifically for, for trans women and making sort of very misogynist assumptions that also intersect with transphobic assumptions about, about trans women. And so I think Sam, I would, you know, I would have to ask Sam this, but I think his statement about it being more about misogyny comes from the, it's, it's about the, the in, his imaginings of the patriarchal imagination, right? So when he says there's nothing worse than being a girl, that's in the patriarchal imagination. Right, right, and of course, so yeah. Then, and so then, when, and when I when, something I've been saying for years is that in that imagine in that imaginary that the homophobia and transphobia have been sort of linked because in that imagination, a man becomes less of a man if he dons a dress or if he has sex with another man. And so those, so those two things are linked in that patriarchal imagination, even though sexual orientation and gender identity are completely different things. And so then, so then, the ways. It's because it's interesting thinking about misogyny in relationship to the ways in which trans men are erased in media, right? That they, they, the that there's so, you have to really look to find trans men represented in media where they're underrepresented. But why is that? That's true. Like, why is that? Like, you you really have to. We, you, it's hard. It's something we explore in the film, and I think one of the things that Jen Richards says is is that womanhood and, and particularly certain kinds of femininity are more easily commodified in consumer capitalism. So there's an intersection of like um, consumer capitalism and the ways in which bodies can be objectified and consumed. And womanhood is something that is always sort of more visible and manhood is something that is invisible, right? That privilege is something right. that, is some, that, that, you, that you become invisible and sort of blend in. Whiteness is this thing that becomes invisible, but you become visible when you are more marginalized, when you're a person of color, when you're a woman. And so it's, it's related to capitalism. And I think, I mean, again, all these things intersect, but I think the, the misogyny piece is, is it's really deep because I, I mean, I can't help but think about the history of tension between what folks call trans-exclusionary radical feminist turfs. Some people think that's a problematic term or an offensive term, but I think about right, that. Say legacy. it again. Say, it, say, say what that means again. Break it down for me. Trans-exclusionary radical feminist or TERFs for short, women who identify as feminist. Um, it, it really Janice Raymond's book, The Transsexual Empire, is sort of the quintessential TERF book that basically sort of um, suggests that trans women are appropriating women's bodies and that we are always and only the gender we were assigned at birth. And we're basically like the erroneous argument, which I hate to repeat, is that we use our male privilege to appropriate women's bodies and experiences and that we because we we were raised male and all, every trans person is obviously not raised male <laughs> but um that the argument is that is that we are always and only privileged and always and only male but most arguments against the existence of trans people purport that we are always and only the gender we were assigned at birth that is the crux of transphobia really i want to so, i want to slow down right here i want to slow down right yeah. here because this is like this is everywhere right now a lot of it sparked by a Twitter tirade kind of from J.K. Rowling and then a doubling down on her beliefs about this. 
I want to stop you here and just go into slow motion for a minute because I'm going to be honest with you. And you and I have had a lot of hard conversations and smart conversations. And I fancy myself a pretty smart person. I don't get it. And so what I don't get, if you can help me, is to me, trans women are women. Trans men are men. How how is my identity as a woman, I identify as a woman, how is my identity as a woman threatened or lessened by your identity as a woman? Like I'm not tracking here. Like in this in the in I think that's the question. And I think what I don't think it is. I don't personally think it is. And I think a few things are going on. I think there's there's um, the the divide and conquer strategy of how power works, right? Power tends to pit marginalized groups against each other. So we um, pit women's rights against um, trans rights. We saw that actually at the Supreme Court when I was at oral arguments for the Supreme Court Title VII case last year. A question came up of you know what about the safety of women in in locker rooms and bathrooms if someone who has and so Tamayor said this. This is on the record. She said if someone who has male characteristics comes in, how, you know, what about the safety of women? And, you know, I, if somebody's just using the bathroom, I don't know what the issue is. Um, but that, because that so, they, so the question of safety, right? Um, Michigan Women's, the Michigan Women's Music Festival was a music festival that existed for maybe 20 years and they excluded trans women from going there. And they, but they allowed trans men to go there. And their contention was that anyone assigned male at birth, had male privilege, and then usurped and used that male privilege to take up too much space and make cisgender women feel unsafe. And what I, what I, would, what I say to that is if, I, if you're uncomfortable with me being in the bathroom with you, there is a difference between discomfort and not being safe. And I think yes. that... Is the but that, but that but the, I believe this is a really important point because I think a lot of with particularly with trans debates, but I think with a lot of debates around immigration, around race, that people are just not comfortable because of what I think because of implicit bias that they haven't fully interrogated. And so then, if like I, I mean, years ago I was in I was working in a restaurant in Union Square, and I was and I was in the women's room, and this woman sort of called me out and said I shouldn't be there, and she was uncomfortable. But I was just using the bath. I was washing my hands. I was not my pres. If you are uncomfortable, and I think in the segregated South, white folks were uncomfortable with black people being in the bathroom with them. Them being uncomfortable with black people in the bathroom did not necessarily mean that they were unsafe. And so I think that is the piece that for me in my own trauma resilience work, because I have a lot of trauma in my past, I have had to do a lot of work of parsing out. I don't feel safe a lot. And so a lot of my trauma resilience work is like, is me not feeling safe about some trigger in my past or is it about what's really going on right now? And so I think all the folks who are suggesting that trans women are usurping womanhood or making women unsafe, that needs to be interrogated in terms of like, maybe it makes you uncomfortable, but it actually, me just living my life shouldn't it actually make doesn't make you unsafe so i think that's the work that mm. needs to be done is that does that make sense is that clear oh my god yes because i'm thinking about talking to about to ibram kendi a couple of weeks ago where he said there's a difference between fear and danger 
what makes you afraid is not necessarily dangerous. What makes you uncomfortable is not necessarily unsafe. And it's like, I am really, I'm just trying to understand. I think you taught me this. I was getting ready to say it like it was my own, but I'm pretty sure you taught me this. Like, if you don't let trans people use the bathroom, you've basically are saying they can't leave their homes. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's, that's, yeah. it is an, it is, it's, I mean, I go back to the paradox that I, I heard in disclosure, the more confident we become, the more positive, the representation, the more danger we're in. And the more visible you become, the more positive, the more violent and negative the erasing efforts. I mean, at some point it's like, there's so much Laverne in the, and this is like one of the things I enjoy doing with you more than anything is getting into these great debates about these things. But I wonder at some point, we have a mutual friend Murdoch who always says, you know, we can't stop fighting until no one on the playground is getting the shit beat out of them. And I think about in disclosure, the trans historian Susan Stryker saying, why have trans rights become front and center in the culture wars? Where are the people saying, you know what, you can't beat the shit out of anybody anymore, including our trans friends? Like, it's- Those people are there. Those people are out there and they're, they're brilliant allies. And even having this conversation is, is, is creating, you, you, you are that and you're creating more um, allyship in this process. A lot of this is 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 unfortunately about political expediency. I think after when marriage equality became the law of the land five years ago, mm-hmm. that was an issue that was used to divide people to turn out a certain kind of vote. We saw that in the two thousand four election very very strongly. I think Carl Rove that was his strategy, his w- very winning strategy to get George W. Bush reelected. So I think those groups of are looking for someone else, right? And they're um and trans people seemed a good target. So a lot of this is about that. A lot of this is about sort of ginning up people's fears of the unknown, um, ginning up people's fears of, I don't know, like just their fears and using just that. Fear. Um, yeah, just fear to turn out a certain kind of electorate and to win elections. A lot of it's about that. And then some of it is just, I think a lot of it is again about if I am uncomfortable where is the where is the self reflection? Where is the where is my part in this? If this person is just trying to get from point A to point B and not bothering anybody, what is my what is my part in this? And I think over and over and over again, their efforts to dehumanize trans people. And I, my my contention for many many years is when we focus on transition surgery and body parts for trans people, even if we have humanizing conversations, that becomes the takeaway from most audiences. And then we are objectified. And then when we're objectified, we're dehumanized. And then we can just take rights away and whatever. And I think we're in an interesting place now with this, with the debate around trans people and sports teams, right? I, when mm-hmm. you, and this has been something that's difficult for me to talk about, because when we talk about performance and sports and, and whether who has an, a, an advantage or doesn't have an advantage, we're talking about physicality. We're talking about like hormone levels. We are yeah, speeds, drinks. Yeah. Objectifying conversation. It's a conversation that reduces people to bodies and performance and mm-hmm. body parts sometimes and, and testosterone levels. And that is a 
very deeply dehumanizing conversation in Idaho the day before Trans Day of Visibility, which I guess that would have been the um, April 30th. They passed into law in the middle of a pandemic, a law that would ban trans kids from competing on, particularly trans girls from competing on sports teams that are consistent with how they identify. And they were able to win that argument, objectifying trans bodies, and then pitting the safety of young girls and the ability of young girls to be able to compete in sports against the rights of trans people. It was very... And this is why when um, when people ask me about J.K. Rowling, and I don't really want to talk about her because I don't I don't ever want to be pitted against another woman or against anyone. Um, I don't don't, you with people. I don't do I don't I don't engage in that. But I think the conversation about pitting marginalized people against each other is what we're seeing there. And it's so crucially important because that could be a winning strategy if we allow it to be. Right. It could be a way to deny young kids. I've never wanted to play sports. I'm, that wasn't my thing. But for the kids who do want to play sports, yeah. who are trans, who the team, I mean, the people I know who have played on sports as kids, the, the um, teamwork and, and, and friendships and just the physicality of it was, was transformative for them. And trans people shouldn't be denied that right just because they're trans. And here we are. So it's... We're, <laughs> it's a really interesting time. And I think what, I think the other piece is that, I mean, trans people have always existed, right? But we lived in the shadows for so long. And as we come forward and say, we have a right to be here, that means that the culture, this culture that's been very binary for a very long time has to grapple with the reality of gender not being binary. It just isn't. I mean, I'm a trans woman, I identify as a woman, so that is a binary existence, but non-binary people are real and they exist. And we have to contend with that as as a culture because these people are here and they don't they shouldn't be relegated to the shadows anymore. No one should be. Everyone has deserves to live in the light. And so this is this is the issue really with trans folks right now is that we have to grapple with the existence of people that we have discounted, discarded for for hundreds of years. And it's going to take. I mean, it is really going to take the personal interrogation and self work the policy work. It's going to take it all. And you, you're changing the world. You're changing us. I think disclosure is going to matter so much. Mm. And I think the fact that it's coming out this week with this Supreme Court ruling. Interesting timing. It's it's amazing timing. It's coming at just as there has been, I I just want to make sure we talk about this because this is hugely important. I've seen last week, the Trump administration announced the Department of Health and Human Services is going to enforce sex discrimination protections according to the plain meaning of the word sex, which rewrites the Obama era regulation that included a person's own sense of being male and female, really incumbent upon physicians right now to declare safe spaces in their offices and their practices for trans people until this is overturned again. Um, Well, the thing that's the the really cool thing about the Supreme Court decision today, based on my understanding, my friend Chase Strangio, who's a lawyer who works for the ACLU, told me yesterday is that because we now have a federal a federal law uh, that the Supreme Court basically made today say stating that sex discrimination is indeed discrimination against uh, someone for being trans or someone for being gay or lesbian that rule that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services announced on Friday is now moot because we have a is federal that true law. 
That is my understanding. It could, it could be challenged, but now we have, because basically what that, that, that rule on the, the section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act basically is the non-discrimination um, section. And it says that you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of sex. And so now federal law has said that sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. So then because of the Supreme Court case today, what the Department of Health and Human Services announced on Friday, based on my understanding, what my friends at the ACLU tell me is now moot. They can't, they can't enforce that. And what Chase reminded me of yesterday is doctors can choose, insurance companies can choose not to discriminate, right? They, we right. can make that choice. Right. This administration really wants people to discriminate against trans folks. And there are localities in, and there are different states that have already had protections in place for um, trans folks, for gay and lesbian and bisexual folks. So there's been a patchwork of protect, non-discrimination protections, depending on where you live. For the first time in the in the history of this country, we have federal non-discrimination protections for trans people and for gay and lesbian folks in, in employment, and which should extend to a public accommodations, healthcare, et cetera. It should. This is a huge, huge decision today. And it can't be underestimated. And I think and the and the piece of what this administration has been doing, a similar thing was argued at the Supreme Court that sex is this and, and it, can I tell you, I was, I had never been in the Supreme Court before. It was really quite an honor to be there. It was, it was super emotional on, on October 8th last year. But the opponents of civil rights, <laughs> the folks who argued against um, Amy Stevens, um, Mr. Um, Bostock and Mr. Zardis case, their arguments were really flimsy. They were these sort of outlandish kind of scare tactics that people, that folks have been using to like scare people about trans folks that really had no legal merit at all. And it felt like they were like, oh, we have a conservative majority. We can go to the Supreme Court with some really flimsy arguments and win. Like we can come half-assed um, prepared. Yeah. <laughs> it was it wasn't really half-assed, in my opinion. I'm not a lawyer. And but we won. And that feels really, really good. Obviously, it's only one part of the equation. Laws have been in place for a long time, banning like murder, banning discrimination, right? And yeah. people still do those things. So again, it's a it's work, it's a work to change people's hearts and minds and folks really do the work to be vulnerable and to, to be more loving and to think critically. I think that we have a whole propaganda system in place that is like Fox News, that is a whole, and I, and I would, and, I, and honestly, I was on MSNBC earlier, like I, we have to really <laughs> think critically. We really do. We really have, because what, a lot of what we're getting in all, most of our media is is so skewed and so biased and so, sort of, you know, sorted and tribalized and, and we, everybody needs to be able to think critically and hopefully from a place of love. I think there's so much fear. There's so much scarcity. There's so much, we're in, um, my therapist would say we're, our collective um, resilience zone has been super, really narrowed. And I think a lot of us are just in this, we're deeply traumatized by so many things going on, right? Like record unemployment, a global pandemic, the, just repeatedly seeing black Violence. people murdered on camera, yeah. the collective trauma of all this. We're still in the collective. I think Toronto Burke said we're collectively traumatized in the reckoning around Me Too. There's so there's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. Jobs have been shipped overseas. People are going through it and don't have any tools to deal with trauma. That what that collective trauma that we are going through as a nation. That and so we're in the trauma. We're in fight, flight, or freeze. So we're, we're blaming, as you would say. We're like, so we move away, move towards, or move against is how shame works. That is what we are doing. That is what we're doing in this moment. And so then how do we 
everybody, I don't care what, what Republican, Democrat, independent, how do we get to this space of moving away from the fight, flight, or freeze, moving into this like recentered nervous system collectively so that we can then look at each other and say, Let, let's work together. And people in power unfortunately want us to be here. They want us in scarcity. They want us in fight, flight, or freeze, fighting each other, fleeing, and just in, they want us here so that they can maintain control, maintain power, corporations, big money. I mean, I, it, it comes down to so much of that, but I, I, believe, I believe in people. I really do. I believe in love. And I believe if we can, you say love is the most, and I, and I believe you, is, and joy is the most um, difficult experience, uh, emotion to um, feel. And I think joy is, for me is tied to love. And, and to really drop into that, to, to loving ourselves and loving each other, I think is the work. Cornel West says justice is what love looks like in public and what tenderness feels like in private. And where is the love? Where is the love? I think we end there with that question. Where is the love? Oh, you are all of those things, Miss Laverne. Okay, so can we do a rapid fire 10 questions? Of course. You yeah. ready? Fill in the blank. Vulnerability is? Risk, um, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. My Brene Brown definition. <laughs> Okay. She, I can tell y'all, I've done talks with her in public where she's like, you remember when you write this and I have no memory of it and she can quote me. It's the scariest. Okay. Number two, you're called to be brave, but your fear is real and you can feel it. It's caught right in your throat. What's the very first thing you do when you're called to be brave? My prayer is God, give me permission to do this imperfectly and allow me to be of service. And I take a deep breath and I go. Okay, it's beautiful. Something people often get wrong about you. What other people say about me is none of my business. (laughs) (laughs) I can't high five her because we're on Zoom, but I'm doing it here. Okay. Last show that you binged and loved. Oh my gosh, what was the last one? The Good Fight on CBS All Access. Oh Jesus, I'm obsessed. Okay, that's so good. One of your favorite movies. Dangerous Liaisons <laughs> from the 1980s with John Malkovich and um, Glenn Oh, Lose. my God. Vanity and happiness are not compatible. One of my favorite lines from a movie, Dangerous Liaisons. That movie is so intense. Okay. A concert you'll never forget. Beyonce, everything. Um, Beychella, um, the um, homecoming Bo- um, Coachella concert, Beyonce at Coachella. I, it was like molecule shifting, everything. like. Oh my God. Yeah. Religion. It was like a religious experience. I was like converted into the church of Beyonce. (laughs) I was already there, but I was reconverted. Yeah. How could you not be? Okay. Favorite meal. What I, what I, what I eat, what I still eat or what I, what I I would like to eat, but don't eat anymore. (laughs) What will you, this could include what you could, what what anything you want. Mm. If I could still have it, it would be like, Spicy tuna rolls with the rice, with um, <laughs> with Ben and Jerry's chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream for dessert. Sushi and ice mm. cream. Wow, that sounds. It is what it is. <laughs> Sushi and ice cream. It sounds so good to me, actually. What's on your nightstand? Estrogen. 
Okay. <laughs> what else? Estrogen, my iPad. Um, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. A snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you true joy. <sighs> Me in the shower with, with Lantine Price blaring on my little wireless speaker. Mm. Singing along. It's probably the Lantine Price singing Damo Suale from um, Il Turbatore, like the um, Bell Telephone Hour performance that's on YouTube from like 1963, I think. Epic, everything. <laughs> Epic. Okay. One Last one. What's something you're deeply grateful for right now? Everything. Everything. And when I say everything, I mean every challenge that I've had recently, and there've been many during this pandemic. I'm grateful that our movie's premiering in a few days. I'm grateful that I'm having this conversation with you. I'm grateful for um, all the things that have gone wrong and imperfect. I'm grateful for the pain. I'm grateful for the sort of devastation I'm still in a year after my breakup. Like my boyfriend broke up with me, my ex-boyfriend broke up with me almost a year ago and I'm still devastated. I can't believe I'm saying this publicly. Still devastated. I'm grateful for it, though. I'm great because I'm leaning into it's and it's and, and I I said to myself, I'm still devastated a year later, and it's because the love was so real, the love was transformative. I never thought I could be loved like that. I never thought I could love that way, and it changed me. And to just get over that in a few months or a year actually doesn't even make any sense that it took me 45 years to find that is it means it's going to take a minute and that that vulnerability just leaning in, into the truth of that and the acceptance of that I'm so grateful that I'm still devastated because I, it means it meant something to me it means that um it changed me and I don't have to like I've been wanting to just tell myself get over it, get over it, move on move on move on and it just it grief is grief and it takes however long it takes we don't get to call that shot, do we? The grief Apparently call. not. Or I would have been over no. it a long time ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Laverne, thank you so much for being on Unlocking Us. And thank you for, you know, I'm always in awe of your intellect, your ability to connect conceptually complex ideas in ways that make sense. But the thing that always kind of awes me the most about you is your centering in love. And I'm always so grateful for that. Every time I see you, every time I talk to you, thanks for being so centered in love and being so consistent with that. It's a, it's a rare and beautiful thing like you, like you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I say to you, thank you for the body of your work that has been so pivotal in my understanding of, I think I probably said this to you before, but I had done shame work before yours and I read Brought Bradshaw and I was just like, huh? What it just I I knew that it was a thing for me, but I did. But then when you, the TED talk and then the books, it's just so clear. It's so it's so clear what it is, and then it's like okay, I can address this, and that it just that changed that that changed my life. I know you hearing that is like a weird thing, but that is life changing. And I think that but the struggle too. I think also what I appreciate, um, and you understand this because I've heard you say it that I appreciate the struggle with all this stuff that like it's gonna be imperfect, it's gonna be messy, and that we don't have to be there yet, but it is about, it's about the journey. It is about the process. It's about 
not being there yet and like but exposing the struggle <laughs> to get there so i that is that allows me to breathe because i'm like i i have so many moments of like you laverne cox you should be this and you should in the shooting shooting all over ourselves uh, this shit is always a judgment this shit is always shame based so so grateful for for you dr Brene brown <laughs> so grateful for you, Laverne Cox, and and awesome. and we'll do. Um, I'll give everybody more information around how to see Disclosure on Netflix this Friday, June nineteenth. A documentary to change hearts, minds, and policy. Amen. I'm ready. Ooh, I like that. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Laverne. Virtual hugs. I hope y'all listen to this. I hope you can sit with it. I hope you can re-listen to it, write down what's important to you about it. Think about it. The whole idea to me that transgender people have always been here, but they've been pushed to the margins and shadows and that everyone deserves to live in the light. That was a huge takeaway. And I believe that so much. I mean, sometimes people will say, you know, what issues are you taking on? You're supporting Black Lives Matter. Now you're supporting Trans Lives Matter. You know, you care you care about gender equity. You know, I have one issue that I care about, and that is the dignity and rights of human beings. It's just a single issue. And as long as someone is still getting beat up on the playground field for being themselves, I care about it and I'm going to talk about it and we're, we're going to talk about it. It's almost as if we're operating from this place in the world today where, look, we got to beat the shit out of someone. Who can we pick? Who can, well, let's not pick them. They're, you know, they're, they've got a really loud voice right now and they're kind of, they're, they're tough to pick on right now. They're, you know, everyone's watching. Let's, you know, let's, oh, we can't pick out, you know, who's left to pick on? Like nobody, we don't have to, we don't have to beat the shit out of anyone. We can love everyone. We can accept everyone. We can accept all parts of ourselves. Like, that's possible. And when I say stay awkward, brave, and kind, like, I mean it. Stay in the awkward conversations. Stay brave in the hard conversations. Stay kind to yourself and other people. It's not a big ask. But somehow it's become revolutionary in the world today, which is an indictment of I think the world and this need to offload our pain and hurt on someone, it just doesn't have to be that way. We can learn how to work through our own pain and hurt and not use other people as punching bags. I mean, that is not a big ask. So again, a huge thank you to Laverne and then an invitation to watch Disclosure on Netflix this Friday, June 19th. Another invitation is on Juneteenth, which is June 19th, read the history, take some time for reflection, take some quiet time, and make this a day we'd redouble down on our commitment to anti-racism, to dismantling transphobia and to finding the beauty and love and dignity in all people and to Laverne's point I think that starts 
by looking from within and ends by changing policy to maintain the dignity of people, whether everyone's hearts and minds change or not. Have a good weekend, y'all. Unlocking Us is produced by Brene Brown Education and Research Group. The music is by Carrie Rodriguez and Gina Chavez. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Unlocking Us on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award-winning shows at podcasts.voxmedia.com.